Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.com. PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Pat Blaschel to discuss a topic near to Nate's heart. Texas is the reason, the mavericks of Lone Star Punk. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Pat Blaschel to discuss his book, Texas is the Reason, The Mavericks of Lone Star Punk. Pat, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure, my pleasure. I've been um, had your book sitting here for a long time, flipped through it many, many times. It's a beautiful photo book, and um, I've been so busy with my day job that I've really had very little time to prep for shows, so I went to one where I knew the material very well. So thank you for being here as a as a resource and a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, because I was a yokel in Borger, Texas while this stuff was happening, but I got to Austin as fast as I could and got here in 88, which was pretty much after the scene you documented had the butthole surfers had gone national, Scratch Acid was becoming Jesus Lizard, et cetera, et cetera. But tell us about the book. It's a beautiful photo book. How did you come to be the photo documentarian of this scene? Well, I always have to uh, to give a nod to the people that came before. I wasn't the only one, um, but um, I was studying photojournalism and had, had started taking uh, 35 millimeter pictures in high school. And once I got to UT, the best advice I got from a professor there was you should photograph your own life. He uh, uh, said that you should 
you should document what's going on around you because you're you care about that and you'll care about it later when you're when you're older and you look back at the pictures they'll the pictures will mean more to you so uh, at that time I was going to punk shows and I it was the music I cared about it was the most interesting thing in in my life so I just uh, took his words uh, literally and and started uh, shooting the 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 shows that I was at and the people that I was around um, I learned a lot from a guy who had started before me a guy named Bill Daniel and he had photographed um, bands especially in performance and the only thing that I kind of well I mean I, I was a, a different very different kind of photographer but the only thing that I sort of formally did different uh, in terms of subject matter from Bill was that I started photographing people on and off stage, you know, in their homes or just going to Taco Cabana or something. So that was a little different. But it was it was always a project that I cared a lot about. And I, I think that I had in my brain the idea that you should just document everything. That's the kind of photographer I was and still am. You know, I'm interested in taking pictures of anything that that looks good, you know, within the lines of the frame. So I just, uh, yeah, I just went nuts photographing this completely uh, on, you know, psychedelic, crazy punk rock scene. It was what I cared about, and it was a great subject. And tell us about this scene, because, you know, nationally, this scene has an interesting reputation. I know Stephen Blush in his book, American Hardcore, called the section on Texas, Texas, and because it was just so sui generis and you know, outside the box. Tell us about the scene. I mean, how did bands like the Dicks and the Big Boys, I mean, openly gay lead singers in Texas. And, you know, this is a time in the punk rock scene. Michael Stipe was in the closet. Both uh, Bob Mould yeah. and Grant Hart of Who's Credu were in the closet. I mean, you know, this this was still very controversial in the punk scene. And yet somebody like Gary Floyd was way beyond out and proud. I mean, he was <laughs> confrontational. Yeah, but I think that the key to my answer is in what you've already said. Austin was, I mean, there have been a lot of queer uh, performers and people in the audience at every punk scene, uh, from New York to London to, to you know, they were all over uh, various punk scenes all over the world. But in Austin, it was a little different because our our punk scene really kind of caught fire during what I call the second wave of, of punk bands. And the big boys were kind of in between the first and the second wave, but with uh, the first performance of the Dicks, that's where I date the beginning of the second wave of Austin punk. So it was just, the, the difference was that uh, Gary Floyd from the Dicks and Biscuit from the big boys were kind of leaders of the scene. And they were very, uh, if not, uh, if not, totally out, I'm talking about Biscuit here, then then their aesthetic was queer. Uh, so it was just, it was obvious and clear to everybody that these guys were great sort of leaders. They were kind of uh, opposite sides of the same coin and everybody respected them and everybody couldn't wait to see their next show because you didn't know what either one of them was going to do. Um, and they also just were, the, they were very supportive in their own way of all the different other bands. So these were kind of the leaders of of the best part of our scene. And I think that the way that they uh, conducted themselves on stage and off uh, sort of made everybody feel like everything is uh, um, uh, uh, everything is allowed and nothing is forbidden. 
Fair enough. And and this phenomenon, you mentioned it, you know, when I moved to Austin, and that's a recurring theme with so many characters in this story. And being a Texan and being from West Texas in particular, I mean, Texans are confrontational. And, you know, East Texans might be a little bit more polite about it and sneaky, perhaps, but West Texans are real in your face with it. And so yeah. do you feel like there was an element of people who'd been backed into corners their whole lives or had to run for it. And once there was an, we were in Austin, there was sort of a critical mass of people at each other's back. And then we were Texans. So we were confrontational about it. Uh, Excuse me for putting me, we in there, but I feel like I was rooting for it from far away. Um, at the time we were paying very close attention to what we heard coming out of Austin and it was weird and terrifying. You know, we heard about the big boys, but couldn't get a hold of the records, but then you know, the first records that come out of the Austin scene that made it to the panhandle was, you know, this, would you consider the butthole surfers and, and scratch acid to be like a third wave or would you consider them still part of the second wave that you were putting the big boys and the dicks in? You know, honestly, I don't know if I really go to the third wave. I kind of, I think the main uh, important thing was, was that point where the dick started and bands realized they didn't have to sound quote unquote punk to be punk. So, um, yeah, my, my <laughs> I'm like the guy that says first of all, and never gets to like second of all, you know. First <laughs> second, and and then after that, it just kind of got really messy. And I I also define punk as like a lot of different things that people would split hairs about post punk or psychobilly or whatever. It's up to me. It's all a kind of punk rock. So. But yeah, I, I think that there were a lot of people that fled their little towns in, in Texas to Austin where they'd heard things were more progressive and they might have more freedom. But you also have to remember there were people that grew up in Austin, which is what I was one of these. And we were still reacting to, to this idea of Texas uh, a lot. And I think that uh, that that had to do with some of the strength of the scene because um, as everywhere else in the country, people kind of reacted against some of the BS or some of the terrible stuff they thought they saw around themselves at that time. And, you know, people in Iowa, people in Chicago, people in Florida were, at least in some of those places, uh, were angry about Reagan, for example. But in, 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 in Austin, you had so much pressure in everyday life that was so intense, like like they say, you know, everything's bigger in Texas, but the pressures were really, really so uh, so extreme there. And I think that's why the music was extreme. Yeah, I mean, in the early 80s Reagan era in Austin, the fraternity boys at the University of Texas were off the chain. I mean, they had yeah. probably kept their heads down somewhat during the 60s and 70s, but um, yeah. it's t- it's time to cue a song, though, and this is this is how the big boys answered that challenge, and this <laughs> is the big boys classic Fun, 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 written by Chris Gates.
And that was fun, fun, fun by the Big Boys, possibly their most hardcore sounding song. But tell us about the Big Boys ethos. I mean, they legendarily closed every show by saying, now go form your own band. Tell us about that and how they instigated a DIY ethos. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of people don't remember anything but, you know, fun, 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 or maybe one other song. And then that thing that they would say at the end of the show. So they they were very clear and they, they were, you know, very in line with a lot of other punk scenes and a lot of a lot of other punk performers uh, to think that. But they, they made a point of really saying it and really uh, showing it. Uh, Bill Daniel, the photographer I mentioned earlier, he said in a very memorable way, I think he said the big boys practiced reciprocity. So uh, that meant that, you know, they they do for you, you do for them. And I meant that while they were touring, if they met a band that they liked, they would tell that band, come to Austin and you can open for us, which actually was not a good idea. Um, <laughs> better than trying to follow them yeah and they would they would and they and that's one of the reasons the big boys established contacts around the rest of the country but you know also i mean tim and chris and, and uh, all the various drummers those guys were well behaved and super supportive generally but biscuit himself was like such an ambassador you know i've had people tell me that they that they met biscuit on one of their first nights in town and he the next time that they saw Biscuit, he remembered their name and gave them little trinkets and, you know, little uh, uh, voodoo bracelets and all sorts of stuff that he would make. He was really singular in, in his uh, enthusiasm for for uh, people uh, and, and for, for sort of, you know, supporting the scene. So, I mean, I, I think the, the big boys really, uh, as a whole, were that. Um, and and it and it became untenable, I think, at a certain point, especially yeah, for all of the members of the band. That's an awful heavy weight to carry to be kind of like you know the the godfathers of the scene. Um, so that was uh, great, but it was it was a it was a burden for for the guys in the band eventually. Yeah, that that's clear from what they did immediately after um, at least Chris and Tim. And I'm talking about Tim Kerr and Chris Gates, who are the guitarist and bassist in the band, respectively. And one yeah. other aspect of the big boys that is important to mention to me is that they're very influenced by British bands like Wire and very much kind of on a similar path to the Minuteman and shared that that they were really into funk and they were they took the funk punk thing further than pretty much anybody else in the country. And I don't and this is way before the Red Hot Chili Peppers and yeah. uh, all that. But the Red Hot Chili Peppers and the whole, you know, funk metal scene, which is kind of a redheaded stepchild in some ways to some people, but clearly a massively influential scene. And and I would say like probably the most influential thing on 90s heavy metal through, you know, the, the dreaded new metal phenomenon, which I've kind of come around to understand. But the big boys really did kind of start all that. And they also were committed to integration and, you know, famously were friendly with the DC scene and even played with Trouble Funk, the go-go band out of DC and yeah. some yeah. legendary shows and, and, and held their own. Um, and well, I don't know if we'll even get into the bad brains incident. I've talked about that on the episodes about the bad brains, but that's definitely an incident where leaders of different aspects of the scene nationally came together in Austin seemed to hit it off, played a legendary show together. The Bad Brains were one of the only bands that could hang with the big boys in Austin. And the big yeah. boys were one of the only bands that could hang with the Bad Brains at that time, albeit on their home turf. But, you yeah. know, things notoriously fell apart there. What was the 
reaction of other bands from outside um, Austin that came to town that you remember? Like, what were some of the, you know, how did the California bands react when they saw the Austin scene? Or did any of the East Coast bands make it down here that weren't from D.C., like any of the Boston or New York bands at all? Well, I mean, it's hard to say. There was so much going on in the U.S. I mean, there were there were bands that were kind of predictably uh, uh, a sensation when they came to Austin. I would say like a, a minor threat and Black Flag were well received. Um, uh, but then there were bands like Fang, uh, who just came to town and blew the doors off the place. And I didn't know them very well. I uh, didn't know their music well, but somehow they really hit it off in Austin. People, Austin just loved them. Fang was a, an, an unusual um Berkeley area uh, punk rock band, a great band, but not the sort of thing that people always name. On the other hand, I would say that some of the touring bands that kind of had a, well, I would say pretension, uh, a kind of a, a some, somewhat of a pretentious shtick, uh, they didn't always come over so well. I think you mentioned earlier about Texans being confrontational. I think Texans are also super allergic to pretension and putting on airs. And um, unless they're I, from Dallas, but well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, there's there's contradictions within this, but I, I feel like that's a you know that's a kind of a somewhat true thing about Texans is they really? like somebody yeah. that speaks plainly and they like somebody who's honest, even brutally honest. And um, like uh, I remember when Crucifix, the the uh, California band that was on Crass Records, a uh, uh, super political, you know, uh, like Discharge and crafts themselves um, real fast and interesting, but they came to town and it just, I don't think people were that excited about them because they were an American band that sounded a little English, that were kind of a little bit more like an English group. Now, I can't speak for Crucifix. I think they were probably decent guys, but I don't think they were embraced in the same way as bands that came to Austin and really just kind of said, here's who we are, you know, you take it or leave it. And you know, somebody like somebody like uh, uh, Black Flag or Minor Threat were very much that. You know, so Definitely. I think, yeah. I mean, and the ba the Bad Brains incident, I'm 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 happy to talk about. It was it was a, a kind of a terrible thing, but um, just just as a note, everybody in Austin that knew about them and had heard them before that show was already kind of excited to see them. And the people that were at the show have, have all told, I wasn't at the show, but the people that were at the show told me it was one of the best shows they'd ever seen. One of, the Bad Brains themselves were one of the best bands they'd ever seen on the planet. The problem happened after the show. The, the trouble happened after the show. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely did. And, and um, brought up a, a lot of ugliness. And I think that the collision of the idealism of the big boys and of the Bad Brains, you read about HR, or, you know, I mean, uh, you probably know plenty of people who knew HR at the time, but yeah. the HR's reputation before he came to Austin that day was very similar to Biscuits in that here's this black guy who's an outsider, you know, yeah. but, but, but who becomes this leader. And there's these stories, you know, him giving people the last penny in his pocket or putting his coat over a puddle to help somebody across, you know, like this gallant gent leader of the scene and this moral authority. I mean, he was Ian Mackay's moral arbiter, you know, talk about a heavy responsibility. And then, yeah. you know, it all kind of implodes. And 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 I'll 
talk about MDC and their role in that a little bit later. But first, I want to talk about the dicks. And before we can talk about the dicks, we need to hear some. And this is actually from the California iteration of the dicks. So forgive me, but it's my favorite dick song, and I want to play no it. Uh, this okay. is Motel Room from the Orange Album. And that was Motel Room by the Dicks off their second album after Gary Floyd had split with the original Texas members of the Dicks and replaced them with a crew out of California and moved out of town. And so two things about the Dicks. You you mentioned they were the flip side of the coin of the big boys, which is perfect since the album that I finally got my hands on many years later after nearly a decade of questing after it was the big boys, Dicks, uh, Live at Raul split album. Yeah, um, yeah. Tell us about that and tell us a little bit, what, elaborate more on how was Gary Floyd kind of the other side of the coin of, of Biscuit and the dicks to the big boys? Well, I mean, the, 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 the big, the, the, the dicks were as terrifying as the big boys were lovable. I mean, the dicks were just really intimidating. Uh, I saw their first show and they I could barely look at the stage. They were so angry. And so it was just like emanating from the stage. Uh, it was it was uncomfortable. And, you know, there's tapes of, of that show that it have ended up circulating in that. I think this, there's one tune that's called Saturday Night at the Bookstore, which is actually recorded that very first show at the Armadillo World Headquarters. And they were just kind of, you know, improvising. Um, and I mean, you know, I, I won't go into that song too much, except to say that for an improvisation, it's an amazingly, amazingly poignant um, statement about people and communicating with people and love and all this stuff, you know, um, with, within, uh, within a narrative about being at a, a gay bookstore and looking for anonymous sex. It's just, they, Gary Floyd, he, he called up this extraordinary power as a lyricist and as a singer uh, but it was it was sort of cloaked within this band that was pretty scary looking and tough and and you know I don't know that I I didn't see too many shows of the big I mean of the Dicks because um, because of that because of their um, thuggish uh, appearance and reputation uh, people that knew them and hung with them uh, would would disagree but you know it was it was tough to get close to them because they were pretty uh, as I said pretty intimidating. Um, and I think that that record is also, I think that's a great place to start when you when you talk about Texas punk, not just Austin punk, but but Texas punk, because I think it's really, the, the dick side, I think, is some of the best punk ever recorded. I mean, literally, some yeah, of the, the best ever. Um, so th they were just, you know, they were ferocious in a way that the big boys uh, weren't exactly. And, uh, you know, I think that, when we when I find, when I have found out more about the big boys, I realized there was a lot of tension, and they weren't just all cuddly and lovey dovey, and they had some uh, some some difficulties and some some pain in inside of that group. And 
as I've learned more about the Dicks, I mean, I've, uh, speaking to uh, the people in the band, I mean, they they were not as scary as they might have seemed. And uh, at least Gary Floyd, I think, is just he's super articulate. He's not just an angry man. He's he's some, somebody that, you know, has a perspective uh, and his yeah. anger. His anger was quite uh, sort of uh, appropriate, given uh, the context of Texas. Definitely. And I think the Dix was a classic case of sort of porcupine people like they had to put off a tough front to do what they did in Austin or just to survive in Austin. And and, yeah. you know, one of the ways to deal with packs of frat boys, and that's one thing you have to understand about. Austin and the University of Texas is enormous. I mean, 40, 50,000 students and the fraternity system is overwhelming. I mean, one of the first things you learn when you come to UT is do not cross, say, you know, and I'm not going to name a specific frat because I'm still afraid of them. You know, don't cross this frat or that frat because, you know, there's 500 of them. They're all six foot two and, and you know, ready to stomp you with those rope or boots they're wearing. And their dad is all the attorney general. Right. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, yeah. so there's this context of you are not going to win against these guys. And the thing about hardcore to me was it put off such a scary front that it spooked them. And then the next iteration of the scene really freaked them out. What the butthole surfers and the scratch acid were doing really scared the bejesus out of normies. Um, and, I, you know, but before we get to there, I, and I didn't put this in my outline, but I want to talk a little bit about um, the Stains, who became MDC, Millions yeah. of Dead Cops or Multi-Death uh, Corporations. And tell us about Dave Dichter, because he's yet another openly gay frontman, later transitioned. And they weren't in Austin anymore by the time they made their national breakout Millions of Dead Cops album and, and the peace compilation that they were leading for. So tell us about how they fit in the scene. And why do you think they left town? Why did Gary Floyd abandon his band and leave town and keep the dicks going? Why did the big boys break up? Talk about that sort of like the hardcore scene, qua hardcore scene falling apart, kind of spinning away from itself. Well, I'm not an expert on MDC. I didn't actually care for them much. Um, they started off as the Stains, and from 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 people that I've talked to, I mean, they were quite uh, um, standard issue punk. Um, Dave Dichter was supposedly wearing, you know, like New Wave sunglasses and uh, proclaim, proclaiming his love for Devo, if you ask him. Um, but they uh, they kind of. I think had a turning point when uh, they got a new drummer. Dictor himself told me this when they got Al. Uh, not sure of Al's last name, but Al Stain became their drummer, and he was a more accomplished, even you know, somewhat jazz trained, I think, drummer. And so he was able to handle a different style of music. And then the thing that Dictor did not tell me was that um, Mikey Donaldson from the Offenders did some. Uh, time filling in with them because they didn't have a bass player from what i've been told there was a kind of a crucial moment with uh the stains or, or as they are about to become mdc where they didn't have a bass player they didn't have a drummer they got a new drummer named al al was more uh, musically skilled and they also borrowed mikey uh donaldson from the offenders to use as their bass player um, their, their songs had been kind of standard punk before that. And there was a rehearsal where Al and Ron, uh, Al and Mikey were playing with the guitar player, Ron, and, uh, with Dave Dichter, the singer, um, Dichter and Ron, the guitar player and the singer stepped outside, uh, and took a break. 
But Mikey and Al kept playing and they decided to have a little game to see how fast they could play the songs before the songs fell apart. And they were doing that uh, for a few minutes and then uh, uh, Dave Dichter and Ron came back in to the room and heard what they were doing and said, what, what, what is that? What are you doing? That's pretty cool. Uh, so this could could have been, I think, the 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 moment where the hardcore version of of uh, MDC was born. Uh, they did a they recorded a newer, faster version of their first uh, single, "John Wayne Was a Nazi," and they uh, then recorded the record. I think by the time they recorded the record, they'd left Austin, but they recorded it in Houston, and they were already living in in California. That record caught everybody by surprise. It was just kind of a catching lightning in a bottle type thing. It was well recorded. The songs were good. And people were, I think, startled and surprised at how good it was. Uh, but yeah, they'd already left Austin at that point. Um, so, was, sorry to interrupt. It was Al Schwitz. I should remember that because his, his yes. name's Al Schultz. And uh, he's got a great uh, autobiography, Double Life and Double Time. Um, yes. And, and yeah, so they, they kind of caught that hardcore light moment in a, lightning in a bottle. I mean, John Wayne was a Nazi was kind of a classic hardcore statement, very obvious, confrontational, but yeah. it really cut on. I mean, kids in my middle school in Borger, Texas, paid attention to that record in a way that very few other hardcore records penetrated. Um, but why do you think it was that they, oh, let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, I want to ask you, like, why did people need to leave the scene or why did the big boys need to break up? What, talk a little bit more about that pressure, but let's hear from our sponsor first. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And I shudder to think the ironies the algorithm is going to serve up as we talk about the Dicks, who are an openly communist band, as well as being uh, Gary Floyd being openly gay. But (laughs) yeah, this is kind of a moment when the hardcore scene in a lot of places is, is, yeah, this is around the time the DC scene changed its its tone a little bit, and the and and the the Boston scene's about to change a little bit, and New York is about to get even more like this, and Southern California's and place is going to get even more like this. Meanwhile, yeah. SST is going to go more artsy. Describe yeah. that pressure, that generational thing between sort of the strictures of hardcore and how somebody like Dave Dicker Dictor was so dogmatic. Um, and how that pressured people who were kind of more freeform, like Tim Kerr and and Chris Gates and the big boys. Well, I mean, I think the big boys felt uh, that that the uh, some of the promise of punk rock was uh, exposed to them as a bit of a lie early on because they went on tour and went to California and they saw not only that the scene was huge there and there were you know thousands of people at show at shows, but I think they also. Uh, saw and then later kind of processed the idea that so much of the music was was moving in the same direction and had a lot more in common with each other. You know, the bands in California were more like each other uh, than the bands in Austin were. And so I think that they always felt um, that they didn't want that. As Tim especially always thought that punk was just about doing whatever you want, not doing a certain sound. Um, so I think that that idea was really shared by a lot of Austin musicians. And and by the, by the time we got to 1982, 1983, many, many of, of my friends and the bands were not interested in playing like one, two, three, four, fast, hard punk, you know, they wanted to do something else. And the, the best way that I can explain it is to say that hardcore, uh, for, for our bands was an aesthetic, but it wasn't a sound. It was the idea that, everything should be extreme. It should be bananas and crazy and maybe fast or maybe just really slow, but it should be extreme. And that was, I think what happened in Austin was the the bands were very diverse, but they were all in their own ways, kind of extreme and kind of out there. Um, whereas in a lot of scenes you had people that were really kind of, um, felt like they had to do it all very fast and name their band something, something youth, you know, and, uh, it just, <laughs> you know, it, it, it yeah. was just, different in different places. And and so tell us about this extremist reaction and the psychedelic aspect, because the butthole surfers and scratch acid were definitely a swerve and sort of nationally, they're part of a scene that I think we call noise rock now or post post hardcore. Robert mm-hmm. Criscow unfortunately tried to label it uh, the pig fucker scene, which was a terrible name and, and, and never really caught on. But because of his 
presence that kind of made it difficult for anybody else to name that scene anything else. But they were contemporary with bands like Sonic Youth, ironically, uh, yeah. uh, and but Big, yeah, Big Black out of Chicago, and yeah, and yeah. in some ways the you know Who's Do Meat Puppets uh, artsier aspects of SST, kinda. But well, those none I would say differently. But this there was something really scary and weird and awful. I remember the first time I heard the Butthole Surfers. It was a dark winter night in the Texas Panhandle, and wearing a pinto that can literally not get up this giant hill by the lake if unless two people get out. And we had, you know, and you had to count on your friends to wait for you at the top of the hill in that damn pinto, <laughs> you know. And I could hear. Uh, I think it was going down to Florida, echoing through, you know, the Canadian River canyons. And it was terrifying, just absolutely <laughs> terrifying. And when I finally got down here and but saw But you found them, the Pinto, right? It helped I, you. Oh, so. You could not escape that damn Pinto that night. But, I mean, well, what was it like when the Butthole Surfers hit the scene? I mean, I know they weren't quite fully formed yet, but they were weird and scary from the beginning, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and they were really they were exactly uh, they fit in line with what I said earlier. They they you know uh, they just sounded extreme and and really weird and strange, but still uh, you know within kind of the ballpark. I mean, they were playing with their first show. I think was opening for the Big Boys, and they loved the Big Boys and the Dicks. They loved the theatrical aspect of those groups, and but they. Um, they um, just thought of this as, you know, they, they, I think Paul Leary has said to me that it's, it was like this was, uh, uh, they thought it was time for an ideas band. They were interested in having an idea band, um, not, not a band that sounded like, you know, a million other bands. And, yeah, they just, whatever it was they were doing, it was, it was completely compelling uh, and also, it must be said, extremely melodic. You know, I'd grown up as a as a hard rock headbanger with like Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, and and uh, they had two, and they were, you know, kind of putting that in the slurry. You know, they were they were feeding those influences through a, a punk rock filter, and it was great. I mean, because they were they were if punk if you know very sort of loud harsh punk songs can be considered melodic. They were, uh, they, they had song craft, you know, so, uh, they, they were just not only weird and, and hardcore from the beginning, but they were compelling, you know, they were, they were, their songs were, I think really catchier than a lot of the other bands. Yeah. And, and had this uncanny beauty sometimes, even from the first, you know, Brown Reason to Live EP has that say, say, say song that was, um, you know, sort of functioned like a ambient splashdown song would later on in the acid house scene or something. I mean, it was, you know, after this raging, terrifying record and it was only 25 minutes long or something, you know, and here comes this crazy melodic song. It was like the echo of a nightmare. Um, but then well, I, mean, I, think, I think it's important also to point out that there was, a, there was an aspect of seeing them live that uh, was definitely weird and kind of nightmarish, but you, you could also really see a lot of the humor. So uh, humor is key to them and also key to another great um, uh, non-Austin band, the Stickmen with Ray Guns. And Stickmen with Dallas, Ray Guns yeah. from Dallas uh, were darker and, and even more kind of like uh, nihilistic, I think, if you took it straight. But, you know, in talking to 
the guys in that band, I mean, they, they thought that it was the funniest thing in the world, some of the stuff they were saying, which is not repeatable on, uh, yeah. <laughs> on, on, on the air. But, you know, some of the stuff they were saying, they considered kind of like a parody of punk. And, and the, the, the buttholes also, it's, if, you, if you saw them live, I think, and if you sort of met them a little bit, you'd, see the, you'd feel the humor in a way that maybe you didn't if you got the records in another city or you didn't see them live. It, it, it could have been more terrifying uh, if you didn't have sort of personal uh, firsthand experience uh, with them. Yeah, I mean, definitely just as audio with no idea what they looked like. It was, it right. was you know, really easy to fill in the blanks with scary imaginings. So let's hear the Butthole Surfers' Lady Sniff. Lady Sniff from the Butthole Surfers classic first full-length LP, Psychic Powerless, Another Man's Sack. And I want to talk about Scratch Acid some more because they were sort of perceived as a little, at least in my perception, they came up around their first EP hit hit uh, about a year after the Butthole Surfers first stuff. And, and Scratch Acid was a very apropos name. I mean, there's these stories I've heard about David Yao passing out entire sheets of blotter acid at shows. Is that true? Did that really happen? I think it happened, yes. But I don't think it was him. I think it was someone else close to the band. But yeah, it happened. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I mean, it was not, it was, not, it was uh, yeah, I think it was like, yeah, probably somebody in the band, but I don't think it was David. How were they different from the Butthole Surfers? How were they... What what did they bring that was novel? Because there's a angularity and a muscul- muscularness to it. And you can see where Jesus Lizard comes out of this band. And also, you know, members of them were in Steve Albini's infamous Rape Man project a little bit yeah. later. But yeah. um, and, and the Buttholes had kind of already pretty much left town full time by the time Scratch Acid was there. Is that accurate? Well, no, not exactly. I mean, I, I have to admit that at first I did kind of think of the the uh, Scratch Acid guys as a little bit of like the the little brother band from the Buttholes. Uh, that's not that's not quite accurate. But they the two groups were friends, and they did share a lot of sort of uh, similar stuff. Uh, they they I think they learned a lot from each other, but more Scratch Acid learning from the Buttholes. But um, I mean, all of all of Scratch Acid had been in other groups. Uh, Ray, the drummer, uh, was in the Big Boys uh, and uh, Jerry's Kids, along with Brett, the guitar player. Uh, then uh, David, David was David Sims was not in a group, but David Yao had been in a pretty standard kind of punk rock group, group called Toxic Shock. Um, and I think that. One thing that they also shared with the buttholes was that they didn't want to do a sort of standard punk group and that they they had a wider palette of uh, things they were listening to. I would say uh, with the butthole surfers, they were listening to people like Chrome uh, from San Francisco, but also the Blue Oyster Cult. And the the, uh, Scratch Acid guys were listening to uh, Flipper, 
and um, I think uh, the birthday party, and and also Led Zeppelin. So uh, I know that might seem like splitting hairs, but actually there's a huge difference between Led Zeppelin and Blue Oyster Cult. So those things are even those sort of old school influences they had were different enough so that the way that the band regurgitated them led to a different sort of a sound. So, um, yeah, they were just mostly, I think, uh, another key difference between the two was that uh, the, the, the buttholes really embraced performance and sort of theater uh, early on, and they kind of stuck with it. And there was always some sort of a show. With Scratch Acid, they only did that a little bit at the beginning. I, I think they had a few shows that were quite elaborate in the way they, they kind of dressed up, but they, they didn't do that as a, um, as a regular thing. Uh, so they were, in a way, they were kind of more themselves because they were performing as, you know, themselves uh, more with, with fewer masks or pyrotechnics. Um, but I think they just had really different influences. Uh, they, they were, they were, uh, Brad, Bradford, the guitar player in, uh, in particular was, was quite, it was kind of like a, it was kind of like a punk rock hippie. And I couldn't say that about any of the, of the buttholes. Yeah. I, I think that's a really excellent, um, diagnostic of the differences between the two. I'd throw in the Black Sabbath influence with the buttholes too, as yeah. well as the Blue Oyster Cult, and also Grand Funk Railroad, who they talked about all the time. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, and, and and Scratch Acid, you know, David Yao's commitment to confrontationalism. Talk about him a little bit as a frontman, because I don't think people who've, who aren't familiar with his work with Scratch Acid or Jesus Lizard, I mean, you know, by the time of his biggest fame with Jesus Lizard, he's this full-blown G, he didn't take the Gigi Allen thing, but but sort of a similar ethos to Gigi Allen of kind of throwing himself on the mercies of the crowd and being completely, uh, at least performing as if he were completely intoxicated and just absolutely out of control. And, you know, he talks in the book about how what got him about punk the first time he saw a punk band, I think it was the Huns at Raul's, yeah. was how confrontational the singer was. And that was his takeaway. Talk about the confrontationalism of David Yao a little bit. What was that like to see in Austin? I don't, you know, it's hard for me to think of the guy as confrontational. He was one of the first people I met at, at Raul's, the first punk club in Austin. And I just thought he was the funniest human being on the planet. He was just so funny. The guy could just like cock his eyebrow at you. And it was hilarious. There was just... There was always something about him that was just very, very funny. He once told me he was going to get a, a tattoo, and it was going to be in the shape of a bruise, right? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> nobody would even know. Or then he was thinking about getting an apostrophe for a while, and if he if he, if he he sat a little lower in his chair, he said, oh, then it'll look like a comma. You know, just shit like that. Yeah. He, he, he just was – he's just a very funny guy, so – I suppose it is controversial, and also he's got a habit of pulling out his his uh, wiener. Um, and yep. I think that for I think for women, especially today, that just sounds like way too much uh, performance, <laughs> uh, way too much information. Um, but I always just thought he was kind of chasing after, you know, good, slightly dirty fun. You know, he. he I, he the difference between I think somebody like David and somebody like uh, Gigi Allen, maybe even somebody like Kurt Cobain. Um, the, I think David really he likes life. I mean he likes he likes people. He likes cats. You know he's a he's a very sweet guy. Um, so he has 
always kind of put himself at the mercy of an audience and really thrown himself into performance. But I, I just have a hard time believing he, he would ever really actually want to hurt anybody. He, he, but it's, it's about a show. It's about, and, and really kind of about pushing your body and the music to, uh, to its limit. Yeah, and I just saw him a few years ago with uh, Jesus Lizard reunion, and he's still doing it in quite a big theater, and you know managed yep. to scare me from the balcony, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, and I, but I think I think you hit the nail on the head with the positivity, but and I think Cobain is an excellent third person to put in there, and now let's hear Poison Thirteen's One Step Closer. one step closer from the very hard to get for a long time poison 13 album and so the the if the butthole surfers and the scratch acid kind of represented the psychedelic aspect i want to talk about that psychedelic aspect because that's something i just took for granted in the 80s that acid was around and you could get it we thought about it as a 60s cultural relic in a way but it's documented fact that there was more LSD and more people taking LSD in the 80s than at any other time in American or probably human history. Um, (laughs) And tell us about that. Like, was acid part of the scene the whole time you were aware of it or did it come in at a certain point? Was there like a Grateful Dead show in Fort Worth or something and suddenly (laughs) the the drug was everywhere? Like, what do you remember about the, the, the chemical cocktails that were being served in Austin at the time? And did it change through the course of this scene? Yeah, I mean, I think it waxed and waned, uh, or I should say, you know, certain drugs waxed and waned. I I have to say, I think acid, mushrooms, uh, maybe even peyote or mescaline, these psychedelics were always a part of Austin. Um, One of the one of the continuities that I didn't really think about so much back then, but I sure have a lot now is that, you know, some people think that psychedelic music itself was invented in Austin with uh, the The 13th 13th floor floor elevators. Yep. Yeah. And then and they exported it to California and was like, you know, they they brought it and then the California people sort of took it to another level. But, you know, it was always in Austin. Austin is a very green place. Uh it's it's less so now. It's more concrete y uh and, and very the, the landscape is, is much different. But you know, the hill country is generally um a kind of a um a trippy place. I mean, it's an unusual uh, place and it's, it's I would say it's more verdant than parts of Texas. It's certainly not uh, as lush as other parts, but you know I think it's a kind of a psychedelic place and those those drugs were already there. I think that uh, specifically with punk, the first uh, the early sort of um, incarnations of it in the first wave, I think you saw a lot more speed use of speed, uh, which was if you connected to the uh, other parts of of Texas context and then I think. There was a big connection with some of the biker gangs and uh, uh, methamphetamine or brown biker speed, it was called. Um, but there was still um, there was still even in some of those early bands a lot of dabbling with psychedelics. And then I think it just it was just all over the place in uh, uh, in the second wave and then on into the 
you know, now basically it's just, it's just very, um, common. I, I don't really, uh, have, uh, the, the statistics that you're talking about where LSD use was, and, and, and perhaps mushroom use was so much more prevalent in the eighties than I understood, but it doesn't surprise me because. Yeah. yeah it it strictly has to do with the Grateful Dead's, the scale of the Grateful Dead's operation and the, and the literal drug manufacturers that orbited around them. And, and after Garcia died, there was a point when you couldn't get acid in the States for a couple of years around the two uh, thousands, which was, um, stuff we've talked about on the episodes, but let's talk about poison 13 for for a minute because okay. like even you know as a hick a total corn dog from border texas like hearing about okay. this stuff fourth hand from kids who are in fort worth and seem so cool but actually didn't see any of the shows either um yeah. poison 13 was initially seen as this bizarre betrayal what the hell are these guys doing what is this stuff this is so negative and scary and weird and and rock and blues and and and, you know, I, I accidentally saw them when I came to UT to check it out on my high school, you know, trip when they send you down alone for the weekend to try to navigate this thing. Wow. And I saw the Lime Spiders at Liberty Lunch. I'd heard of the Lime wow. Spiders and was excited about them. And, and the Poison 13 opened up for them. I don't even remember the Live Spiders show, like the Lime Spiders show. I mean, it was like Poison 13 was just this – I'd it was – um really just outside of what I was expecting. And it was obviously powerful and, and dark and compelling. And then lo and behold, it becomes this enormous influence on grunge. Talk about like, what was the reaction to poison 13 in Austin? Why didn't people accept it in Austin at that time? Or what, or did they, I mean, were there other reasons that that band didn't, you know, become so, you know, they, they were, they had their, thumb on the pulse of something that was going to become enormous but they were long gone by the time it became a thing well i mean i think that there was there was a change in the scene at large uh in, around 1982 or so uh that i've i've said i think has to do with uh people on on the one hand getting tired of sort of uh uh cookie cutter hardcore punk and also a few other bands around the world were were uh looking backwards. And so Austin bands started looking backwards a little bit and taking sounds from the past. Um, so Poison 13 um, was really kind of in line with some other bands in, in Austin, uh, revisionists, I would I would say, uh, but also around the world, like the Lime Spiders, like a wonderful band from Sweden, I think the Nomads, wonderful. Um, and I was hearing all this stuff and thinking, ah, you know, I'm, I must have missed this. I never heard about this big star. Who is big star? You know, and wow, so I, was, yep. I was doing the same thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think I wasn't I certainly wasn't the only one in Austin. There's other people in Austin or even R.E.M. were saying it in their interviews. We're talking about big star. So a lot of people were getting the same idea at the same time, seemingly independently, but actually probably listening to each other and, and looking back to things that we might have missed, you know. So Poison 13 was doing that. I think the way that I remember it, the way that I saw it was that Poison 13 was popular and much loved in Austin from the get go. No, they did not have the huge crowds that the big boys had, but they, I thought, were understood in the way that they wanted to be. Um, I remember them as being popular. Me and my friends all loved them. We thought they were just you know, once again, just not like any other band and they were great, but the band themselves have said, they feel like, you know, they weren't as popular. 
um, with with uh, audiences that they that they kind of um, you know felt felt like they were. I think it was Bill Anderson that said they were you know two blues for the punk crowd and two punk for the blues crowd. Um, so you know there were other bands in Austin that sort of tried to patch punk together with something else, and that makes it sound more facile than it was. But um, they they Poison Thirteen I, I thought were great. I know that from talking to them that the uh, really first and foremost in their minds and Tim and Chris's minds was they really wanted a band that was not the big boys. They wanted to do something different that didn't have that burden, that responsibility of being the band that sort of shepherded the, the scene, you know, and it was the sort of the godfathers of the scene. And they've also told me, um, Chris Gates, the bass player, has told me that they wanted to form a band around Mike Carroll, who at the time was their roadie. Uh, but he also had this tremendous sense of style, and um, he was just a just a cool dude. And they thought, you know, there's something here. And they kind of took their cues from from this guy Mike, who had previously been a very sweet, very soft spoken, and hardly uh, like you know audible person. He didn't talk very much, but he he cut a a striking figure. So Poison Thirteen kind of I think they were interested in something different musically. They wanted a, a band that wasn't didn't have to be responsible for everybody in the scene. And they were interested in this kind of music, this older music. Yeah, and tell us about Tales of Terror too, because this was a band I had no idea of until I, I heard Mark Arm talking about him in an interview yeah. in the heyday of Mudhoney. Uh, and, you know, and also you mentioned Fang, which is yet another band Mudhoney covered. And so Mark Arm is paying such close attention. And it turns out so many people, Kurt Cobain and the whole, you know, yeah. Buzz Osborne, the whole Seattle scene was paying very close attention to the Austin scene. Yes. But how does Tales of Terror come into this Austin story? And why do they, um, it, they just came to play a show and stayed here for 16 months or something? They would not leave. They wouldn't leave town. The guys were just like, come on, get out of here. You've been here like three months now. They just, they 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 were they would not get off the couch. Um, they they kind of invited themselves to to town, and I think that eventually people just said, God, "You gotta go, you gotta leave us." Um, Tales of Terror and the U Men, I think, came to another a great Seattle band came oh, to town. That explains a lot. Okay, go on. They came to town around the same time, and this is where I think. Uh, you know, the sort of invasive species theory goes that they, they those three groups, Poison 13, Tales of Terror, and the U-Men kind of were friends, had a relationship, as it's been explained to me. They were pals, and they were trading ideas, and maybe it was a kind of a friendly competition. But then eventually, <laughs> Tales of Terror left. Uh, the U-Men stayed a little, uh, not quite so long, but the, both of those bands went back. Tales of Terror went to Sacramento and the U-Men back to Seattle. And I think they took some of what they learned back, including also talking about Poison 13 and talking about Austin. So they kind of planted a seed in, in California people's minds and especially in Seattle people's minds. Uh, and I think people got some ideas from it. But the way that it's been explained to me by the people in Poison 13 was like, if there, if they were an influence on grunge, it was because of that unique relationship between those three bands. Um, that know, was the piece I was missing. I knew the U-Men had come 
Yeah. Had toured Austin, but I didn't realize that they were part of the, t- that they were here at the same time of Tales of Terror and that they were so tight with Poison 13. So that's a very important piece of the puzzle. Thanks for fitting that yes. in. So, yeah. And t- so the Tales of Terror guys were just all over my pictures. They were hilarious and they were funny guys and really just, yeah, real fun loving dudes. And also another band that I had no idea was um, capable of what they were and as influential as they were. They were just like these goofy guys that were that arrived on the scene and I had fun watching them play. Uh, and I mean, play like, you know, uh, around town. I, I can't remember actually seeing them play live, but they, <laughs> but they were just, they were just ubiquitous and they were hilarious. Cool. And so Pat Blasel has been my guest. The book is Texas is the Reason, the Mavericks of Lone Star Punk. Thanks so much, Pat. This has been great. My pleasure. It's been fun to talk to you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate continues the Let Motown Roll miniseries with an encore presentation of his 2019 interview with Andrew Flory, author of I Hear a Symphony, Motown and Crossover R&B. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast. And you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.